the most pervasive myths start in science. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who just came back from the beautiful province of Nova Scotia, that is Dr. Kaylee Byers. Hey Kaylee. Oh hi, how are you doing? How was your how was your summer here in uh, Vancouver? It was very too hot for my liking. I like the temperatures to be, you know, 15 or below. Anything above that, I'm sweating and I'm irritable. Uh, what was it like over on the uh, the right coast? It was above 15. You would have been absolutely miserable. So it's probably for the best that I didn't <laughs> pack you away in my suitcase and bring you with me for uh-huh. more than one reason. Uh-huh. So yeah, it was it was quite warm, but it was, it was really, really lovely. Uh, I was lucky I got to see my family and spend a lot of time staring at starfish, which is one of my favorite activities. Ooh. So cool. How was the yeah. how was your eating over there? Oh my gosh. It was really good. There's a local grocer that's come in so they're bringing in some local foods and of course I got to have one of my favorite dishes which is lobster with homemade biscuits and mussels as an appetizer. And I am very excited that we're going to be talking all about very delicious foods today. <laughs> Maybe lobster, who knows? Uh, so today we're talking with Desiree Nielsen. Um, and Desiree is a registered dietitian and host of the All Sorts podcast and author of Eat More Plants, a plant-based anti-inflammatory cookbook, as well as the upcoming 2022 Good for Your Gut. She has a practice focused on chronic digestive and inflammatory disease and plant-based approaches to optimal health. Hi, Desiree. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So lobster, anti-inflammatory, yay or nay? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Points for the fact that it's a whole food. I, you know, it's so funny because I think people get so caught up in nutrition and you know there's a ton of science that goes into this but at the end of the day we're pretty much always doing better if we just eat like single ingredient foods well i'm very good at that uh, one of my favorite foods is crackers no nope, that's not a single ingredient it, it is a single thing <laughs> it's not even a single syllable no, Kaylee, come on. i know i'm already <laughs> failing this is going to be bad for me okay let's talk about diets Desiree, what led you to pursue a career as a dietitian? You know, I actually started out at UBC um, thinking that I was going to go into med school. So I was like, oh, nutrition seems like a really good thing to know as a doctor, right? Because I had read that, you know, in med school, there really isn't any nutrition education. And I was pretty passionate as a teenager about taking a really sort of holistic approach to health. Like I had this awesome GP growing up and she would always be like, Desiree, like, how are you doing? Like, you don't look so well. You know, really wanting to talk to you about like what's going on in your life as opposed to just like, let me check you out. Let me take your vitals. Here, take this medication. And so I really wanted to be the kind of doctor who was like, let's talk about your stress. Let's talk about how you're eating. And then I got into UBC and I was like, a lot of these things I think I'm going to do as a doc are actually what I would do as a dietitian, which I didn't even know what a dietitian was going into UBC. So I was like... All right, this fits. Let's check it out. Desiree, when we look at all of these myths that are coming out and all these cleanses and all these new fads that come out, I'm wondering how much of your job is just battling this information age that we're in right now. Like now we have access to all this information. Is it making us healthier or, or what's going on? You know, as a dietitian who puts herself on the internet to educate people about nutrition, I have a real love-hate relationship with it particularly because I work with a lot of people who have complex cases for whom there isn't just that this is the diagnosis, take this pill and everything goes away. You know, so many of the clients that come through our practice have been to multiple medical specialists, then they've been to the naturopath and the, you know, TCM practitioner and like everything in between, and they're still not well. And so the internet can be amazing for people with that sort of complexity because they can gain access that maybe their GP doesn't have at top of mind because they don't see a lot of it. So it can be empowering in that sense. The challenge is like nutrition doom scrolling is real. So you get into these communities 
you know, like anti-inflammatory communities or like gut health communities, and people just start spewing this garbage. Oh, this worked for me. This worked for me. And it could have been total placebo effect because that's real. But then people get really scared. And, you know, this has been happening for so long, but social media just makes it so much worse, particularly in the age of video, because we're like attaching to people like really emotionally and searching for these answers. And so I actually think it makes us a lot less healthy. One of the things that we really want to talk to you today about was diet myths. I feel like there's 1 million diet myths and that I've taken part in probably about 5% of them. I'm thinking about like cleanses <laughs> or that, you know, high fat foods are bad for you. So what do you feel are some of the biggest diet myths out there right now? I think that one of the biggest diet myths out there is absolutely that anything you do for seven to 14 days is going to magically erase what you've been doing for the last 10 years. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense in our mind, right? Like it's this like reset, clean slate, like everything that came before just didn't happen. But unfortunately to, you know, like, I don't know, our mitochondria and our like red blood cells, <laughs> you know, that's just not the case. Like our red cells weren't necessarily like going to completely renew themselves overnight because we drank a bunch of green juice. So I think that's something really big, but I think sort of the bigger reason behind it and why is that we are constantly searching for feeling better, right? You know, so we have this idea that if this, then that, you know, someone actually just in my DMs today was like, I have, I'm having a really huge problem with reflux. What supplement can I take to get rid of it? And I'm like, whoa, 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 back up. Okay, so let's talk about your stress. Let's talk about like how you're eating in general. Let's talk about what else is going on for you because we have this idea again, which is a myth sort of sold to us by this huge diet industry that there is one answer to solve them all, which completely negates like how our body actually interacts with our environment because food is not just nutrients, food is information. And so like our body is constantly interpreting its environment and responding in kind. And it's not just one piece of information. It's not just the gluten. It's not just the vitamin D. Like it's so much more holistic and complex than that. Hmm. We contain multitudes. <laughs> so you're telling me then that I can't just uh, hit subscribe on the, ooh, this special tea is going to make your whole life better. Like that's not going to do it for me. No, all that tea is going to do is make you poop your pants. I mean, there's a time and place. <laughs> there's a time. I mean, maybe if you're constipated, that's 100% yeah. what you're on board with. But if you think it's going to detox something, no, it's just going to make you detox your wallet when you buy new underwear. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I wanted to get into something that I never had heard of when I was growing up is the word gluten. And now we have these gluten-free foods and we have people that have gluten intolerance. I wonder if you could just get into that a bit and tell us what gluten is, what it does for our bodies and, and what's going on with uh, this now new movement. Yeah. So... You know, gluten-free is just sort of the new baseline in healthy eating these days, which it really shouldn't be. And gluten is really interesting because it's just a protein. And we're all pretty protein obsessed. Like all of us can agree, protein is like a really good thing. <laughs> gluten is just a protein. It's a protein found naturally. It's not, you know, genetically engineered into wheat. Like it's just there. Like the reason why bread rises is gluten. But it's really unique structure for a protein. So it contains a high number of amino acid bonds of proline and glutamine. And because of those proline and glutamine bonds, our digestive enzymes don't 100% break it down. And so because they're not broken down into their basic components, they don't get absorbed. Like anything you break down 100% and absorb into your system is no longer an issue for your gut because it's not interacting with your gut tissues. Gluten is not that way. So because you have these sort of partially digested gluten fragments, they now have the opportunity to interact with your gut tissue and to interact with your microbiome. And so that's kind of like interesting from a nutritional perspective. But what really started this all was like the awareness about celiac disease. So celiac disease is this autoimmune disease that isn't caused by gluten. You don't eat gluten and give yourself celiac disease. But once you have celiac disease, eating gluten triggers the autoimmune cascade. So you have to go completely gluten-free. 
And, you know, if you were celiac like 15 years ago, it Mm. sucked. You had like one kind of bread to eat. It was pretty much like styrofoam. So this whole gluten-free fad is fantastic for people with celiac disease because now they can eat like any food they ever ate before. Now you can get in gluten-free. So there's like some silver linings to this. The bad part of it, though, is that people think that gluten is bad for you. And there's like there's sort of a lot of observations and like truths about gluten in the scientific literature that really like freak people out. So we know from the celiac disease research, which was spearheaded by Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's like a world famous researcher in celiac disease, that gluten triggers the release of a molecule called zonulin, which essentially like unzips the tight junctions in between your intestinal cells. So in theory, this is like no good for your gut. Really, it sounds bad, right? Like, you know, you don't want to like unzip your gut cells. This sounds very dangerous and very scary. They are not genes. No, thank you. No. And and especially like zero chill for your immune system because like the vast majority of our body's immune system lies, you know, just under and along the gut barrier surface. So you're like, okay, so now the immune system might be seeing stuff that's like in the center of your gut that it's not used to seeing. Maybe it's going to freak out. And we see that like gut barrier dysfunction. So this like unzipping is really a hallmark of like autoimmune type diseases like celiac disease, but also like chronic inflammatory concerns. The other thing that sort of freaks people out is that like the genes that predispose you to celiac disease, so the HLA DQ2 and the DQ8 also predispose you to other autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. But like only like 3% of the people that bear those genes actually get celiac disease. So just having those genes, because people will say, oh, if you have these genes, you should go gluten-free because gluten's going to give you an autoimmune disease. But just having the genes or even having like another autoimmune issue doesn't instantly mean no gluten. So it's the most pervasive myths start in science. They start with these kernels, particularly of like observational and like laboratory science, and then they get completely twisted in a logic that makes sense to a lot of people, but doesn't actually follow science. So, but it's harder to shift because people are like, they don't get why it's not scientific to think these things, right? Like science is hard. (laughs) Preach. (laughs) It is hard. So where are we right now? Like in 2021, like, do you feel like you said, now that we have all these gluten-free foods that are available for people that have celiac disease, that's amazing. Uh, But there's all these myths that are out there that perhaps are causing problems for people that that should be eating gluten. So where would, you know, you recommend, you know, where you'd like to see things go with this uh, gluten-free movement? Yeah. So I love that the food is available and, you know, particularly if we're talking hyper-processed foods, who cares if there's gluten? I really want people to eat wheat berries. I don't care if you eat white bread, (laughs) like, you know, Um, but I think probably the most dangerous thing is, the fear of food, because that has very real physiological effects on our body. And I even, you know, there's another dietitian colleague, she's forming this theory that the limbic system of the brain, upon being exposed to fearful messages about food, for example, gluten, can cause very real physiological, immunological reactions upon ingesting that food. So, you know, that freaks me out a little bit. So I think that, you know, if people aren't feeling well, the most important thing to do is not to start Googling it. The first thing you do is you go to your doctor and you describe exactly what's going on in your body and you let that doctor do a thorough checkup. And if you have any inkling that nutrition might be of benefit, again, you do not immediately Google unless you go Googling registered dietitians to go sit down with because it's our job. And people like dietitians are always honestly the last resort because they're like, oh, well, a dietitian will like ask me to change how I eat and stuff. And that's annoying. (laughs) Truly. Right. I mean, like, don't take away my chocolate bars, which I will not do, by the way. Or my crackers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's, you know, the whole reason why health professionals here are here is to like, interpret the science for you, you know, because it's not we can find a single study to prove just about everything, you know, that's true in most things, including nutrition, especially nutrition. Um, But it's our job to be like, okay, so what does this study mean, given that I have like 75 others that say this? 
And we do all of that in our head before we say, oh, hey, just eat wheat berries. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's uh, transition to another one of these myths, another one of these words that I see when I'm Googling and I'm doom scrolling through and I see words like thyroid and hyperthyroid. And I sort of know what's going on there, but it seems to be a lot of people are talking about it. So why don't you get into first, tell us what is thyroid, you know, in our bodies and what is going on the health community with it? Yeah. So the thyroid is a little butterfly shaped gland that's really important for your metabolism. You can almost think of it as like the thermostat of your body. You don't want it to go too fast. You don't want it to go too slow. It can mess with all sorts of other things, including your weight, um, regardless of how you eat. And it seems that a lot of people have very low thyroid function. And there's a little bit of controversy around this because there's sort of like the standard medical cutoffs for what is normal thyroid function. And then there are people, you know, particularly in the integrative and naturopathic community who believe there's more of a subclinical, you know, low thyroid that can be impacting your health without sort of getting into that standard cutoff. Um, And so people feel crummy, people feel lethargic, Uh, maybe people are gaining weight in an unexplained way, they don't understand what's going on, and they might hear that their thyroid is low, or they might get a diagnosis of Hashimoto's, which again is an autoimmune thyroid condition where the immune system starts attacking the thyroid, gets very confused and starts attacking the thyroid, which is really important for us, and it shouldn't be doing that. Um, but then most people will end up on a thyroid medication. But as soon as you sort of get into this low thyroid, again, you get on the Google Matron and you go, oh, what should I eat? And you hear no soy, no gluten, like all the no's. And that's when people start to get a little freaked out. Yeah, that's totally understandable. Are there any things that you can eat to support your thyroid? Yeah, you know, (laughs) gluten is... Definitely not something that I would tell people to avoid. The one, I think one of the reasons, again, that sort of kernel of evidence why people get scared about gluten is that Hashimoto's disease is more common in people with celiac disease and vice versa because of that autoimmune condition. Mm. So if anyone does get diagnosed with Hashimoto's, it's really probably worthwhile for them to ask their doc, hey, can we just screen for celiac disease? Like, let's put that gluten question like on the table and then clear it off if you don't have celiac disease. The thing that I find, particularly because I do plant-based nutrition, however, is again, we immediately go to this like evil, right? Like gluten, 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 it's causing us to lose our thyroids. And we've been like sprinkling this like little pink salt all over our food that could actually be the cause of our low thyroid. (laughs) Because in the 20s, people noticed, hey, people get these goiter things on their neck. And that happens when your thyroid isn't functioning. Why? Because you don't have iodine. Mm. So iodine is naturally, people who live near the coast, there's going to be more iodine in the atmosphere. There's going to be more iodine in the soils when we eat the food grown in those soils. But -hmm. if you live like away from the coast, you're not eating seafood, you're not eating dairy products. Um, you're not getting as much iodine naturally. And so like in the 20s here in Canada, we started putting iodine in our salt. And lo and behold, iodine deficiency goiter completely went away. And then, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, we started getting this idea into our head, particularly in like the wellness and health food sphere, which is where I've been living for a while, that somehow iodized salt is poison because it's white, right? white stuff, always so bad. (laughs) And we started eating Himalayan sea salt and like French gray sea salt, like essentially anything with like a color was somehow better. And the trouble with that is that even in natural sea salts, because iodine is present, it sublimates out of sea salts very rapidly. It is unstable. And so you can't rely on natural sea salts as a source of iodine. And so somehow we're all walking around with thyroid issues and no one's asking the question, well, how's your iodine intake? Because your thyroid requires iodine to function normally. And so one of the biggest, you know, things that I check on people who are adopting a plant-based diet is, are they getting some form of iodine? And I'm telling people and their jaw like literally drops to the floor 
can you go buy some like old iodized salt, you know, like the cheap stuff in the little box that's like $2, like best $2 you'll ever spend. (laughs) (laughs) And it lasts forever. It lasts forever. Well, not in my house. I really love salt. (laughs) (laughs) But like a half a teaspoon of iodized salt a day sprinkled, you know, amongst your cooking is going to give you all the iodine you need. And that's really, really critical for your thyroid. And it's far more important and no one cares about it. Like everyone's fawning over gluten and no one's actually like caring about the fact that we are robbing our bodies of iodine on a regular basis. Well, I know we did start this podcast with saying that there wasn't like one fix to every, like one fix for something. (laughs) But as someone with thyroid issues in the family, I'm embracing my $2 thing of salt that lives on the counter and one teaspoon a day. That's what I just heard the doctor say. So that's (laughs) that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, So we've been talking about myths. I'd love to like transition a little bit to talk about another myth uh, and maybe one around protein. So I spent about five years in my 20s eating a vegan diet. And the number one question I got asked all the time was, but aren't you protein deficient? And like, maybe (laughs) because I did really enjoy just eating meals that were popcorn with nutritional yeast on it. But how much protein do we really need? Yeah. See, I would definitely be on the popcorn with nutritional yeast train. And if you've anyone listening has never tried it, popcorn will never be the same as soon as you put nutritional yeast on. <laughs> that's, so good. that's my like nutritional yeast stand moment. So, um, you know, it's interesting because that is always the first question. Again, like where do you get your protein if you're on a plant-based diet? Because we associate the word protein with meat. Mm -hmm. instantly those two things are equated. And that's not true because protein is a macronutrient found in many foods, including many plants. And we don't actually need like our bare minimum protein needs are really small. So the DRI recommendation is 0.36 grams of protein per pound of body weight. So for like 175 pound person, this is about 63 grams a day, which sounds like a lot. But not only do most omnivores double that every single day, most vegetarians and even most vegans get more than that every single day without really trying. I typically like a little bit of a higher protein. Like if I'm counseling someone um, on a plant-based diet, I usually advocate for a slightly higher protein intake because the DRIs are typically formulated to avoid deficiency and meet sort of bare minimum needs. And like who in 21 is like, oh, let me just do the bare minimum for my health. <laughs> you know, protein can really help. You know, we usually think of it for muscles, which is great. I'm not that athletic, so I don't really care about that stuff. But like your immune system and like every cell in your body needs protein. So I usually say take your body weight in pounds, divide it by two, and that'll give you a rough approximation of how much protein. So for like a 175 pound person, that's like 87.5 grams. Not that I want people to count their grams, but like to do it for a week or two and just be like, oh, how much protein are in these chickpeas? And like, how much protein is in this bread? It just gives you sort of an idea. And all you need to do for plant-based foods is make sure you get some sort of plant protein on your plate at every meal. So that can be tofu, that can be tempeh, that can be chickpeas. You can get some hemp parts on there. As long as you're thinking about one protein food, all the other foods are going to provide you with extra protein to get you to where you need. And what is a DRI? What's DRI stand for? It's the dietary reference intake. So the Institute of Medicine in the US, they will go through and they will look at like, what is the research to tell us how much we need of a certain nutrient. Like, you know, relatively recently, they updated the DRIs for calcium and vitamin D. Uh, They didn't really do anything with calcium, but they raised vitamin D slightly because it was like a very fancy nutrient like a decade ago. And so they're like, ooh, look, maybe we should do something here. Mm. Um, And so it's interesting because the way they formulate, sometimes there actually isn't a lot of good evidence. Sometimes the evidence they're working on is very old, but the goal with them is always to get it to the point where their recommendation will meet the needs for like 87.5% of the population, which means it doesn't meet the needs of 100% of the population and it overshoots the needs of a lot of people as well. Like this science, unfortunately, isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. And that's why, particularly as a dietitian, like I don't like people getting caught up in this like 
you know, if it fits your macros trend for bodybuilders just to set their macros, which is just another sneaky form of calorie counting. But like I generally don't like people to count micro or macronutrients. Instead, I want them to think about the actual foods they're eating. What fruits and vegetables are you eating? Like what whole grains are you eating? What protein rich foods are you eating? Because that's how we've survived millennia on this planet. And, you know, worrying about, you know, 50 milligrams of calcium here or there, it's just going to make you hate food yeah. and hate taking care of yourself and may not, because I don't know the exact calcium needs for you specifically as a human being, it's not worth worrying about. So like back to back to protein a little bit. Now, I know that you're the author of a book called Eat More Plants. Is there a difference in plant-based protein versus animal-based protein? I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this lately in terms of climate change and how much of an impact farming practices and, and consumption of meat at a large scale has on the environment. So what should we be thinking about when we're thinking about where we're getting our protein from? Yeah. And I love that you sort of like couch the question like that, because there's a lot of ways to answer it. You know, there's there's some really traditional indicators of proteins in terms of protein quality. So things like, oh gosh, the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score. Classic. I know, classic, <laughs> the PDCAS, you know, or like biological value where we like compare everything to an egg. There are all of these scores that have been sort of assigned and, you know, done, you know, laboratory science, you know, this isn't based on the effect of these proteins on a human. Um, and based on that, you know, I was taught in university that plant proteins are lower quality than animal proteins. So as a dietitian, the first thing I was like, oh, ding, 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 ding. You know, if we are eating plant proteins exclusively, we must have to do something. We must have to combine proteins on a plate to make sure there are no limiting amino acids. Something that the science has completely refuted now because of course like everything we eat over the course of the day goes into this available amino acid pool in the body and your body is actually smart enough to be like oh i'm just gonna take the amino acids i need as opposed to like oh no those didn't come from the beans they came for the brown rice therefore i'm not gonna make a liver cell out of those <laughs> like, <laughs> you know so a lot of this was based on like pretty old laboratory science that doesn't necessarily apply to the human being. Um, you know, some of them are also, you know, feeding uh, laboratory animals raw plant proteins, which I don't know if you've ever tried to chew on a raw chickpea. Sure have. No, <laughs> not super digestible. But if you cook that, which actual humans do, it's a completely different experience for the human body. So, you know, we see now like that old like protein combining myth has been completely refuted by modern science. And the science is also starting to poke holes on the idea that you can't like build adequate muscle or fuel metabolism with plant proteins um, in the same way that you can with animal proteins. And from a like a ecological perspective and like an energy efficiency perspective, and even now from a health perspective, I think the data is pretty clear uh, that the more that we choose to eat plant-based proteins, the better it will be for our water usage, our energy efficiency, and absolutely our health as a whole. Yeah, very cool. And I love that you also talked a little bit about some of the other benefits to protein. One of the big things for me in the last year was I was seeing a naturopath around anxiety and something she suggested to me was like, if you're feeling anxious in the morning, eat some protein. And I found it made a huge difference. Now, I don't know if you're about to tell me that like, I am fully having a placebo effect, but I, I found that it made a huge difference for me. No, and it does. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, we're pretty protein obsessed as a society, but like, where do we skimp? We typically skimp in the morning. You know, it's sort of like the little like Rice Krispies and a splash of skim milk culture that like many of us grew up on, like watching Saturday morning cartoons. RIP, I just gave away my age. Uh, <laughs> like, what's the Saturday morning cartoon? It's on YouTube, like, all the time. But if we don't get enough protein, so one of the benefits of a protein on, like, just a meal-per-meal -meal basis is the fact that protein is one of the nutrients that slows down stomach emptying and also slows down the rate at which carbohydrates and all nutrients are liberated from the gut and end up in the bloodstream. And particularly for people um, who feel anxious, erratic blood sugars can greatly exacerbate 
those sensations in the body. So having adequate protein in a meal, particularly in the morning, because that is a time that we skimp, can help to set your blood sugars on an even keel and make you feel a lot more even keeled. Amazing. I love that this was just confirmed. <laughs> now I've done my I've done my due diligence. I've talked to two different people. <laughs> protein in the morning for always and ever. Well, speaking of due diligence, Desiree, you know, I switched to a plant-based diet many years ago, mainly because it was my decision, you know, to do something for climate change, for the environment. It was an easy decision for me. But then along the way, you know, I wanted to be, you know, a conscious eater and I wanted to be excited about the foods that I was eating, which is where I discovered you. And, you know, you are someone that gets really excited about plants. You've written a book called Eat More Plants and you're on the show Urban Vegetarian. Now you have the All Sorts podcast. So, you know, you are someone that I go to to get excited about eating more plants. And in your new podcast, All Sorts Podcast, which everyone should go listen to, I hear you with a very different voice than I have in these other um, mediums because we hear you learning along with the listener from these guests that you have on. So I'm wondering, what have you learned as an educator now in this new podcast, the All Sorts Podcast? Yeah, it was such a good question. I really love doing the podcast. One, because I like having an excuse to like ask all these really cool people to talk to me. <laughs> but I also love because I'm I'm not wearing the dietitian hat. Like I had a conversation with a, a guest after one of the tapings, and he was like, "Well, you it's." funny because you know the answers to all these questions. I was like, yes, I do. But I really enjoy asking the questions anyways. And it's, you know, it's, it's really nice to put to aside that dietitian hat because there are so many conversations that I really want to have that oftentimes I don't feel like it's my role as a dietitian to have, you know, like I really want to talk about climate change. And I had Maya Wickler on who's this incredible voice um, for sort of environmental justice. And you know, I want people to know that truly being well is a lot more than like ticking off grams of protein on sort of like your your chronometer, which good God, I hope no one uses. But, you know, it's we, we get this idea that like eating well is a certain thing and like being healthy is a certain thing. But it's so much more complex than that because we exist within an environment that, you know, changes our moods, you know, that stress us out, um, that, you know, maybe we have clean air and water to drink, or maybe we don't have clean water to drink. All of these things impact our health. And even like early in my, in my degree process, I remember taking a course called like the social determinants of health. And it was like a second year course, like before you get into the, you know, nitty gritty of like clinical nutrition. And they showed unequivocally, like, you know, income disparity is one of the most important determinants of health. You know, countries where there's huge income disparity tend to have poorer health outcomes than countries that have more of a social safety net. And that just really stuck with me that we exist within this web and all of this is having an impact on our health. And um, so I love learning more about the things that I don't really know a lot about. And I also love creating a space for people where it's fun to learn about taking care of yourself because I think the internet has kind of ruined wellness. <laughs> you know, it, it's another place for fear-based capitalism when it's really supposed to be about being our healthiest and happiest self. So I'm just trying to like carve out like a little bit more of a space for people where they can actually feel good learning about this stuff. Well, we certainly love learning along with you in the new podcast. Um, Kaylee, do you know who else loves learning? Is it the nerd herd? You got it. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? Why is life carbon based? The fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right, if you want to get in on the Nerd Herd questions, we post them on our social media at NerdNightYVR, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our first one comes in from Coral, who asks, there seems to be a lot of buzz around how gut health relates to mental health, since so much serotonin is produced in the gut, but it doesn't seem to cross the blood-brain barrier. Desiree, what is going on here? Oh my gosh. Okay, this is literally my favorite topic. <laughs> no, it's really... Really fascinating. And like with most things in nutrition science, we have all of this 
theoretical science why and very little actionable science on what to do with that theory. And that's really where we are right now. So, you know, we see things like uh, gut barrier dysfunction, so that, you know, unzipping of the gut cells, um, potentially allowing fragments of bacteria into circulation, and maybe those bacteria are accumulating in places like your brain and the inflammation is contributing to depression. Um, we see that certain patterns of your gut microbiome are associated with anxiety or depression or other chronic diseases. So we see that there is enormous potential, not only for the integrity of the gut barrier, but also for the, you know, like gazillions of microbes living in the dark recesses of your colon to have a massive impact in pretty much all forms of your health, but also your mental health. And the, the gut is so cool because it's like, we don't talk a lot about the nervous system in the gut. And you know, that question, like, it doesn't seem like the serotonin because the vast majority, depending whose numbers you like, like 90 to 95% of all of the serotonin in your body is produced in the gut. You know, the, these enterochromaffin cells in the gut, you know, if you, if you get food poisoning, you know, your gut is supposed to go one way, right? You're supposed to chew the food, swallow it, your gut carries it down, has its way with it, and then everything else goes out into the toilet bowl. You know, it's not supposed to go back up, but if you get a really gnarly form of food poisoning, maybe we've got a little norovirus, like it is the immune system interacting with the nervous system in the gut that shoots out all of this serotonin from the enterochromaffin cells that causes you to spew out both ends. <laughs> oh. Serotonin is really important for the motility of your gut and for people with irritable bowel syndrome, for example, um, there is some thought that uh, there is too much serotonin happening in the guts of people with diarrhea-predominant IBS, which is why there is this excessive motility. So maybe it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Maybe we will discover that it's having an impact regardless because we do know that physical and physiological states in the gut do seem to be having a very real effect on mental health. We just have a lot of how the heck is this happening, but then more important, what do we do about it? You know what you don't do about it? You don't go and take a probiotic that claims to fix your anxiety because there is definitely no product on the market that does that, but that's sort of the sticky area we're getting into. Um, here's an existential question because we're talking about the microbiome. Do you think that we as humans have free will? Because I I often feel like I don't and that it's my microbes that determine everything. Okay, so if we don't feed those bacteria what they want, and those bacteria actually could be determining a lot, like they could be contributing to cravings, for example, because it is behooves them to try and sustain themselves and for you to eat what they want. That's kind of weird science. But no, I think ultimately we feed them. So we can change what we eat, and it has been shown that by doing so, we can change our gut bacteria. I would say they, they have a firm pressure <laughs> in terms of how our bodies work, but uh, ultimately, we get to decide. Yeah, we decide who lives, who dies. I love it. We should ask every one of our guests, regardless of their specialty, if they believe in free will or not. Just keep, just keep it light, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We have one other question from our nerd herd. This one's from Jasmine who asks, what should you be eating if you have a genetic insulin resistance? If you have a genetic insulin resistance, your nutrition will be the same as if it was more lifestyle induced and not genetic. The outcome may not be the same. Um, so it's always really important to sort of like make these nutritional changes and be really in like collaboration and communication with your doc because sometimes you really just need medications to help support you. Actually, this sort of plays into the whole diet myth theme because keto is a huge internet like trend that I really hope dies. <laughs> but it is an interesting therapeutic tool for a very tiny portion of people. And it's taught us a new way of thinking about how we view carbohydrates in the diet, particularly from a therapeutic standpoint, because I remember being taught in internship, you know, that carbohydrate containing foods, so fruits, vegetables, whole grains, you know, and the like are like so essential that even when someone has frank insulin resistance, so 
you increase the blood sugars, the body will put out the insulin. But if the tissues resist the insulin, your cells are not taking up that sugar. And again, more insulin comes out. Like it's just, it's the cycle, right? Like if the sugar doesn't come down, more insulin goes out. If the sugar doesn't come down, more insulin goes out. And eventually your tissues get real tired of listening to the insulin. And they're like, okay, you know what? It's sort of like that, you know, like a key in a lock that just wears down over time. And so I really didn't like the idea that even if someone had frank insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, that we kept pushing a certain minimum amount of carbohydrates on them. I was like, obviously, if their blood sugars are not doing well, um, the idea is not to treat diabetes like it's a medication deficiency. Like, why don't we think about what their tolerance for carbohydrates is? And that's really something that's talked about in sort of like the keto scientific community. And, and I appreciate that because I think that especially in diabetes, you can test your sugars, you know, you, we have glucose monitors, so we can get really cool instant feedback, like scientific feedback, N of one on our own bodies. Like when I eat this meal, this much brown rice, like this many chickpeas, like this much like French fries, like this is how my blood sugars respond. I think it's really important if someone has insulin resistance to be really curious about the way that their meals are impacting them. And then we can use this like really sort of basic physiological knowledge that if you eat more protein, if you eat more fiber, if you eat a little bit of healthy fat at a meal, that will slow down stomach emptying. That will also slow the rate at which your blood sugars rise. And that's a really good thing. And like all that science comes down to the super boring dietitian advice, which is like, use the plate method, make half your plate, colorful vegetables, put a protein on a quarter of your plate and put, if you tolerate it up to a quarter of your plate in a whole grain. And, you know, that's really, it's so simple. And people are like, that's boring advice. That doesn't work. But I'm like, if you actually follow it, it works. Like it is so powerful. So yes, insulin resistance, more fiber, more plants, get some protein on your plate and then adjust as you get more information. I think what you're saying, Desiree, is that we should all go back and adopt the uh, TV dinner dish so that we can have all the separate portions so that we can get exactly the right amounts that our cool dietitian is telling us to get, right? Oh my gosh. And you can totally buy plates like that. Dietitian meal service. Oh my gosh. Desiree Nielsen fresh prep. <laughs> oh my gosh. That would be... I. I massively heart fresh prep. <laughs> anytime, anytime I make it, my kids like, this is the best thing you've ever made, mom. And I'm like, I write cookbooks for a living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it doesn't have to be like as measured. It doesn't have to be like perfect. There's no such thing as perfect, like 100% of the time. But if you get this like concept that like if you're making a pasta and you maybe like shrink down your pasta a little bit and like up your vegetables a bit more, like that's always going to get you sort of in that ratio. And it's a really healthy place to be. Oh, uh, wow. This is so fun. Should we nerd out some more? Please. What you about? What you about? All right. If you want to get in on the nerd outs, we also post them on our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our first one comes in from Ashley, who is nerding out about Dr. Gabor Mate and his latest research on trauma and mental health. Desiree, have you ever read or seen any videos from Dr. Mate? You know, I have never read Dr. Mate's books. I'm going to embarrassingly admit that in front of like everybody but i am familiar i am familiar with his work yes yes he's he's so cool so cool desiree what have you been nerding out about recently i am very obsessed with mr robot and so i'm yes. I'm, I'm currently one episode away from finishing the whole dang thing and i can hardly stand it is that on the docket <laughs> for tonight like after you log off of here are you gonna go finish it Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm going to go to. <laughs> now, do you find that, you know, you see Rami Malek in this different light now? Because he's in a lot of new things. He's in the new James Bond movie that I'm really excited about. Like, he's just so captivating. He's incredible. And he will 
always be Elliot Alderson to me, no matter what. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've, I've seen movie like more of his work, but he's always Elliot Alderson. And I'm like, oh, but you're the troubled hacker who's going to save us all. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I love, I really love, and I don't know what it is about me, but I really love dystopian like stories. And I'm not like a super hardcore science fiction nerd. Uh, like, I feel like I would get into it more if I knew like where to start and the authors to dive into, but like anything that's like dystopian at all. And I think it's probably because part of me feels like maybe we're already living in the dystopia. And that's why I think this show is so interesting because yeah. it really is this dystopian view of like now, you know, this genius hacker trying to take down like the evil E-Corp who somehow like essentially owns all of our banking and all of our media and all of our technology. And that's, so much what we're living in today that I'm, I'm really sort of like, you know, low key fearful and like skeptical of. So yeah, I think it's just watching it play out on like the TV screen just helps soothe me that someone else is taking care of those thoughts <laughs> right now. <laughs> Every once in a while, I seriously have to check in and make sure that I'm not in the matrix. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like check for a cord or something. <laughs> Honestly, the last few years has really made me question whether this is all a simulation. So <laughs> what about, uh, what about you, Michael? What have you been nerding out about? Well, I've been nerding out about Orange Shirt Day, which it was recently. Uh, 2021 was the first year that it was recognized as Canada's Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, much long overdue. So on that day at the Space Center where I work, our YouTube show, Ask an Astronomer, we gave our show over to Dr. Eldon Yellowhorn of the Pekinese Nation, who is an archaeologist and professor of Indigenous Studies at SFU. Uh, and one of the things that he's really passionate about is something called archaeoastronomy, which I had never heard before, uh, but is basically the study of cultures through the lens of their astronomy. And in many cases, uh, Indigenous people in North America, it's their stories of the nighttime sky that not only do we learn about those people, but also about what was happening like in the sky, in our galaxy, like, long before we had telescopes and it was really being studied. So my main takeaway from him is that there is so much rich and interesting indigenous stories of the sky that we just don't get. And we're classically like held on to these Greek and Roman mythology stories, which, you know, don't get me wrong. I love me some, you know, multiple headed snakes. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, these stories are fraught with violence and a lot of times misogyny. Yep. Like, like, oh, like, oh, look, look up, kids. Uh, here's uh, Cassiopeia. Uh, she's hanging upside down in shame because she was jealous of her daughter Andromeda because she was prettier than her. Um, like, what? <laughs> you know, so I encourage everyone to go out and seek out some of these other stories, uh, especially in our country. Uh, and you can check out the Dr. Eldon Yellowhorn on our YouTube page on the Ask an Astronomer show for Orange Shirt Day, Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, he's also the author of a new book uh, coming out in the spring of 2022, all about archaeoastronomy, but he's got a couple that you can get right now. Two of them, one's called Turtle Island, the story of North America's first people, and What the Eagle Sees, Indigenous Stories of Rebellion and Renewal. Uh, super cool stuff. Haley, uh, what have you been learning and nerding about? Well, I really wanted to be on theme for today's episode. So I want to hype a favorite podcast of mine really hard. Desiree, have you listened to a little podcast called Maintenance Phase? I love Maintenance Phase. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. What do you like about it? Tell me what you like about it. You know... As a, as a dietitian, one of my favorite things is listening to non-dietitians like talk about, yeah, food and bodies and diet culture. And like, I, I'm, I'm ready to burn it all down. So I really love their perspective on all of this. Oh, they're going to burn it down. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for folks who don't know, Maintenance Phase is a podcast all about the diet industry and dives into the harms of diet culture, both for our health and society, um, and how diets and fads are frequently born from so-so science or no science at all. So we've talked about that today. And part of that is that the science is really complex. The hosts are Aubrey Gordon, also known as Your Fat Friend on the socials, and Michael Hobbs. And they're delightful, funny, smart, sarcastic, going to burn it all down people. 
each episode, they dive into a different topic from where the body mass index came from and why the heck we still use it uh, to keto diets. And there's an episode about Weight Watchers that resonated with me particularly strongly because it almost exactly mirrored my experience with like obsessive calorie counting and diet restriction in my early and mid 20s. And so that was kind of like, oh, wow. (laughs) Okay, that's what was happening. And while that one really hit me close to home, my favorite episode so far, uh, if you if you like nutrition and you like science, was a, a story about a nutrition scandal where a really well-known food science lab in the United States was found to have been publishing papers with significant statistical inconsistencies. And now like that's maybe not just interesting if you're a data nerd, but it's also really interesting because those studies were actually used to inform nutritional guidelines for school programs in the US. And all that just kind of coming tumbling down. So highly recommend that episode about p-hacking. Anyway, highly recommend the podcast. It's incredibly well-researched, very engaging. And uh, like mostly I've just got my fingers crossed that either Aubrey or Michael will hear this and want to be on the podcast or be my friend. So (laughs) that's my nerd act. (laughs) Yeah, be our friends. Um, Just that's really our goal with this podcast. We just want to hang out with uh, people that we like because we can't right now because we used to have a night where we did that. Uh, We will soon. But Desiree, thank you so much for coming and nerding out with us. It was delightful. I've learned so much about unzipping and zipping that's happening inside of my gut. Uh, it seems, you know, um, intriguing and also kind of frightening. But <laughs> where can people learn more about you, your book, uh, your podcast, your TV show, all the things you do? Yeah, all, all, all of the things. I just can't, I can't do one thing. I would probably be more successful if I could just stick to one thing. But you know, <laughs> I get bored. <laughs> uh, so my website is DesireeRD, like registereddietitian.com. And then I'm on Instagram begrudgingly at Desiree Nielsen RD. And then of course, the I honestly think the most fun thing is the podcast. So the all sorts podcast, which you can find on all of the places. Well, you might be begrudgingly on the socials, but I'm so glad that you are on Instagram because I get like fun meal ideas and uh, I get to learn more about fun diet things. So Thank you for being on that space, even if you don't want to be there. Um, And thank you so much for hanging out with us. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us over on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, We're now a three-person team, so I get to add a little thing at the end here about this episode was hosted and produced by us and edited by me and edited and audio engineered by Elise Lane. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, get some protein on your plate.